Thank you, colleagues. Um, it's 12.20, so we're going to uh, resume business. And we will turn now to First Minister's questions. And if I may, I'll start before turning to questions, can I ask the First Minister just to update us on the COVID situation? Uh, indeed, Presiding Officer, thank you. Uh, the total number of cases reported yesterday was 858, 4.4% of all tests reported, and the total number of positive cases is now 109,296. 1,012 people are in hospital, 19 fewer than yesterday, and 50 people are in intensive care, one more than yesterday. I also regret to report that in the past 24 hours, a further 30 deaths were registered of patients who first tested positive over the previous 28 days. And the total number of people who have died under that daily measurement is now 4,203. Again, my condolences are with everyone who has lost a loved one. We'll also shortly publish the latest estimate of the R number. We expect that it will show that the R number has risen slightly this week and is now around one again, as opposed to just below one. Uh, this underlines the importance of having taken a cautious approach to this week's levels review and also why we have reinforced our guidance to people ahead of the Christmas period. And I want to briefly re-emphasise today what that guidance is. Firstly, uh, the safest way to spend Christmas this year is to stay within your own household and in your own home. And my strong recommendation is that is what people should do, if at all possible. Any interaction uh, you do have with another household should, if possible, be outdoors. However, if you consider it essential to meet indoors with someone from another household, and pragmatically we recognise that some people might, you should limit both the duration and the numbers as much as possible. The five-day period over Christmas is a limited window, not a period of time that we think it is safe to meet for. My recommendation to anyone who considers it essential to form a bubble is to not meet up with people in it on any more than one day over the Christmas period and to keep the duration as short as possible. Uh, people should also limit numbers as far as possible. Three households and eight people is a maximum that tries to account for the fact that families come in all shapes and sizes, but the smaller, the better. And please make sure you keep a safe distance from others, wash your hands and surfaces and keep windows open. And lastly, presiding officer, we recommend against travel from high prevalence to low prevalence parts of the UK. And that includes advising against travel to or from Scotland and tier three areas of England. The five-day window of opportunity over Christmas is a pragmatic recognition that some people may not be willing to leave loved ones alone, and therefore it is an attempt to put some risk-reducing boundaries around that. But let me reiterate that our clear advice is that the safest way to spend Christmas this year is to stay within our own homes and households and to keep any interaction with other households outdoors. We now have a real prospect of vaccination within weeks for many and within months for most. All of us, therefore, should do all we can to keep each other safe until then. And finally, Christmas aside, let me just briefly remind everyone how important it is to stick to the general rules and guidance. The postcode checker on the Scottish Government's website is there if you don't know what the rules in your area are. But please don't visit each other's homes, stick to the rules on travel and follow facts, face coverings, avoid crowded places, clean hands and surfaces regularly, keep two metres distance from people in other households and self-isolate and get tested if you have symptoms. As always, doing all of these things is the best way of protecting ourselves, our communities uh, and each other and of protecting the NHS as we go further into the winter. Thank you very much, First Minister. Uh, the First Minister will now take questions. I would encourage all members who wish to ask a question to press their request to speak buttons. And I call on Ruth Davidson. Thank you. Presenting officer, 1,264 drugs deaths in a single year. A record number of deaths. 
the sixth year in a row of record deaths, double the loss of life of 2007, three and a half times worse than the other parts of the UK. Scotland's drugs death rate is not just the worst recorded in Europe, but in large parts of the rest of the world too. And yet, just an hour from here, there are world-class rehab facilities, such as Castle Craig, that help get people off drugs entirely. In 2002, they admitted 257 NHS patients. By 2008, it had dropped to 145. Can I ask the First Minister how many it was in 2019? First Minister. Um, officer, this is the first opportunity I have had to address this issue in the Chamber. Um, the figures that were published this week are completely unacceptable and therefore nobody will hear political answers from me on this subject today. We have much to do to sort this out and sorting it out is our responsibility and it is a serious responsibility. Behind every single one of these statistics is a human being whose life mattered. Someone's son or daughter, mother or father, brother or sister. Um, and I am sorry uh, to every family who has suffered grief. Uh, every person who dies an avoidable death uh, because of drug use is being, has been let down. Uh, the fact is, this is difficult and complex, but that is not an excuse. There is much work underway, uh, being led by the Public Health Minister and the Drugs Death Task Force. But these figures tell us that we need to do more and we need to do it more quickly. Uh, the next meeting of the task force will take place on the 12th of January. Uh, I will be attending uh, that meeting to take stock with the task force um, and to consider what further immediate steps uh, we need to take. Uh, I will make a statement in the chamber before the end of January after I have had that discussion to set out what further steps uh, we do intend to take. Uh, undoubtedly part of that uh, will be uh, rehabilitation uh, facilities. Uh, we have been doing uh, some mapping work. We have asked a working group to do that. Uh, between the uh, private uh, third sector and the public sector, there are uh, 365 rehabilitation uh, beds across uh, the country. Uh, but we are not satisfied that uh, that is necessarily sufficient or they are being used sufficiently. So that is not the only issue. Uh, but one of the issues uh, that require to be considered uh, properly and fully as we uh, move forward uh, to discharge that responsibility of sorting out something that is completely unacceptable. And, and I think all of us uh, take that view. Presenting officer, the First Minister's apology is welcome, but it doesn't answer the question I asked, which was on rehab beds. And First Minister, the answer is just five. Castle Craig could be saving more than 250 Scots per year. They did it before, and instead, it is five. And another rehab facility said that 60% of its patients were not from Scotland. Leading facilities are on our doorstep to tackle the exact crisis that we face, and they are full, but they're not full of people from Scotland. They're treating people from Eindhoven and Amsterdam, while people in Possel and Dundee are dying. Castle Craig and the other rehab facilities want to treat Scottish patients again. It's not their fault, but the Scottish Government no longer funds places there. From the SNP's own report, it seems that Universal Credit funds more rehab beds than this Government does. Now, I know that rehab is no panacea, but it can work and it does save lives. So let me ask the First Minister, why? Why did her Government stop funding those beds? And how many lives has that decision cost? First Minister. 
alcohol and drug partners, uh, partnerships across the country do fund uh, a number of beds uh, in rehab facilities. But I do uh, I agree that there is a question about why uh, that is not uh, more so. As uh, members are aware, uh, we have had a working group gathering uh, information on residential rehab beds that was published last week for the first time um, and sets out uh, the number of rehab beds across the country uh, of the 365 around 100 of those are estimated to be taken up by those who are resident out with Scotland. Um, the majority of them are provided by the third sector. Relatively few uh, are provided by private or statutory uh, providers. Um, this is one of the issues that the Drugs Death Task Force is rightly uh, considering, um, but it is not the only issue. There are a number of issues uh, that it is right and proper uh, that the task force continues to consider, and it's uh, all of these issues that I will discuss with them on the 12th of January and uh, come back to this uh, chamber with a statement on before the end of January to set out the further action that we intend to take. Ruth Davison. Presiding officer, that was a, a really long way of saying it, but actually the First Minister is right to say that today, to get rehab, people need to be really lucky and get charity help, or they need to be wealthy enough to afford it. Because only 13% of rehab beds in Scotland are provided by the Scottish Government. Her own report says that people can be on a rehab waiting list for a year. Charities cannot do this on their own. Jericho House doesn't get a penny. They're warning that their position is unsustainable. They run three facilities, including the only residential rehab in Dundee, which has now overtaken Glasgow as Europe's drug death capital. Not that it's much better in Glasgow, because a year ago, the Mungo Foundation's Karam Ella rehab service closed for good. First Minister, that's in your constituency. Back in 2006, Nicola Sturgeon stood where I am, right on this spot, berating the then Scottish Government for cutting rehab funding. In fact, she went further and she claimed that it showed why Scotland needed a new government. If cuts to rehab funding were to be condemned in 2006, as they should have been, why does the First Minister think that they should be accepted now? First Minister. Um, I, I said at the outset of the exchange that I am not uh, going to give political answers. I think many of the criticisms that are being made of the government, uh, I, I think many of the criticisms are valid and legitimate. Um, and I think we have got much work to do in order to ensure uh, that we sort the problem of uh, people dying avoidably uh, from drugs and that is what we are already doing. The Drugs Death Task Force um, has already undertaken uh, many uh, actions and published uh, very recently its forward uh, programme of work. It is not true to say that work is not being done. Considerable work is being done. But as I said in my original answer, I do believe there are hard questions for us uh, to address about whether that work is sufficient and whether it is being done quickly enough. And I'm not going to shy away from that today. Uh, that's why I will meet uh, with the task force in January and consider with them uh, the work that is being done and the additional uh, steps that require to be taken. And as I've said already, I will come back to this chamber before the end of January and set out uh, the conclusions from that. Uh, rehabilitation is undoubtedly a part of that. That is why we already have had the work underway to look properly at uh, the rehabilitation services across the country, what is there just now, what use has been made of the rehabilitation services that are there right now, but also what more we need 
to do in terms of funding and access to rehabilitation services, but also uh, what needs to be done in other ways. Because I think, as everybody recognises, rehabilitation is important, but it is not a panacea. There are many other things that we need to make sure we are focusing on to ensure uh, that people are not dying unavoidably uh, from uh, drugs and that is a responsibility that lies with me and with this government uh, and it is one that we do take extremely seriously. Ruth Davison. I agree on the range of interventions that need to be made but cutting the number of fully funded rehab beds in Scotland to just 22 is not one of them. Now in context in the rest of the UK and in half of Europe they don't have consumption rooms which I know is a preferred policy of this government and they also don't have this number of deaths. Cl drugs classifications are the same everywhere in these islands. The train spotting generation theory has been busted because the number of young people dying has doubled in the last two years. And the thing that is different about Scotland, the thing that is entirely devolved, is drug treatment and rehabilitation. And that is what this government has cut to the bone. Now, people on the front line, the charities that are working with drug users, they are calling for an immediate extra £20 million in ring-fenced rehab funding just to make up for the last 13 years' worth of cuts. So will the First Minister commit here today to doing that so that we don't see a repeat of these horrendous figures next year or possibly even worse? First Minister. Uh, I will commit to uh, ensuring that the resources are available for the actions that we consider uh, are necessary, and that will include rehabilitation services. Uh, in every uh, year since this government took office, apart from two years uh, when funding uh, for drug and alcohol services did decline, um, funding has increased in every year. That is not to say funding has increased sufficiently or adequately, and I accept that. But this is also about more than money. It is about the approaches that we take. Um, and it's about, at the heart of all of this, um, everybody accepting uh, that we should not, uh, any of us, accept a situation where uh, people who uh, use drugs uh, are allowed uh, to fall through the cracks and uh, that we see uh, the deaths that uh, we have seen in recent years. Uh, these are real people whose lives matter and I am absolutely determined that we take the actions uh, to fix this. I am not making uh, comparisons with what is happening elsewhere because I do think the problem in Scotland is worse than it is elsewhere. We see that in the figures and that is something that we have to take seriously. Uh, so I'm not going to shy away from this. I am not going to deflect the criticism. Uh, instead, what I am going to do working uh, with colleagues in government is make sure that we do what we have already started to do through the task force is take the actions that are about sorting this and making sure that we don't let down uh, people who use drugs. Instead, that we are uh, preventing, intervening early, providing the services that allow people the help that they need when they need it, and also taking the action that is about avoiding uh, overdoses and deaths that are avoidable. And safe consumption rooms are not the only part of this, but they are a part of this. And I think it is important that we also focus on that as part of the package of measures that we need to take forward. Thank you. Question to Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. And uh, let me begin uh, with a quote. Since Scotland's drug death day of shame just two days ago, another six people will have died in Scotland. Three will die today. We will not have a daily briefing about these three people or any news coverage. Don't let them be forgotten about until they come out as a statistic. 
These are the words this morning of drugs policy activist Peter Crikant. First Minister, what are you going to do to stop Scotland's other pandemic taking more lives? First Minister. I think Peter Crikant is right um, when he says uh, that. Uh, I've spent almost every day uh, this year uh, dealing with a pandemic and trying to work out uh, how we stop people dying from that pandemic. Uh, the people who are dying uh, through use of drugs, their lives matter every bit as much uh, as those whose lives uh, we are trying to save from other, uh, for, for other reasons. Um, and what we are doing, uh, the Drugs uh, Death Task Force has already started uh, a programme of work looking at early intervention, looking at how risk uh, is reduced and also looking at how uh, overdoses are avoided and we stop people dying. Uh, that work is underway and I don't think it is uh, right uh, that we ignore that work that is underway. I think the Drugs Task Force is doing uh, the right things, but we do have a serious question to ask about whether that work is enough and whether it is going quickly enough. Uh, and I take that seriously. I am not, I am not going to, this is not comfortable. It shouldn't be comfortable. I am not going to stand here and try to defend the indefensible. These lives matter too much and uh, we owe it to those who have lost their lives but we owe it to those whose lives that can still be saved to make sure that people like me uh, do not engage in the usual political defensiveness but accept where criticisms are due and valid uh, and redouble our efforts to make sure that we are doing the right things to resolve this and that's uh, why I am determined that that is what we do and as I've said a couple of times already uh, I will come back here personally before the end of January having spoken to the Drugs Death Task Force setting out the work that is being done um, and the additional urgent immediate steps that we intend to take. Thank you Richard Leonard. Uh, thank you but the problem that the First Minister has got is that back in 2007 the SNP manifesto said there are no short-term fixes to the problems of drug misuse in Scotland and here we are over 13 years on, with the Public Health Minister still defending the government's record, telling this Parliament this week there is no shortcut. People don't expect shortcuts, but they do expect the government to do its job, when instead they've seen cuts, cuts to funding for rehabilitation beds, cuts to the funding of alcohol and drugs partnerships, cuts to third sector support and rehabilitation organisations and an abject failure to integrate mental health and substance use and recovery services. And in so doing, the government has ignored its own 2008 Road to Recovery strategy, the 2013 Review of Opiate Replacement Therapy, the 2019 Dundee Drug Commission report. Why has the government ignored these repeated warnings and presided over a 178% increase in drug deaths since 2007. First Minister. I don't, I, I don't believe it is uh, right to say that we have ignored recommendations, but setting out what the government has done, as the Public Health Minister did in the Chamber earlier this week, uh, does not mean that we are standing here saying that therefore there is not an issue that we uh, merit uh, valid criticism and scrutiny for and that it does not mean there is much more uh, we need to do and that's what I am seeking to set out openly and candidly today. Uh, in every uh, one of the years since we took office, bar two, and I am not saying that those two are not important or have not had 
implications, but bar two years, uh, the money being invested in drug and alcohol services has increased under this government. Um, and we need to continue that and we need to look not just at the totality of the investment, but what that money is supporting. And rehabilitation services are part of that, but it is not the only part of that. Um, I don't think it is right or fair to ignore the work that is already underway through the Drugs Death Task Force, important work looking at these three uh, areas of earlier intervention, uh, reducing risk and avoiding uh, deaths uh, for people who are at risk of, of overdose. That is important work. I think it is work in the right direction, uh, but it is equally valid to say that we need to accelerate the pace of that and we need to be uh, very critical and looking at whether what we are doing is sufficient. And uh, that's what uh, I undertake uh, to do and we will continue to do that. And we will uh, absolutely uh, be very clear in what requires to be done and hopefully uh, as we go forward, uh, while there will be legitimate criticism of this government, we can also build consensus on the steps that have to be taken to make sure that we do resolve this and sort what is an unacceptable situation, uh, which I think is something all of us agree with. Richard Leonard. Thank you. Well, none of the alcohol and drug partnerships I speak to would recognise that description of what's happened to their funding over the last 13 years. And I was in the chamber for the Minister for Public Health statement to Parliament on Tuesday, and it was woeful. I heard him say, we cannot change things overnight, but the government has been in power for 13 years. He also said on Tuesday, the Scottish government was doing everything in its power, but the exercise of the Scottish government's powers has made things worse, not better. There are now three and a half times more deaths from drugs in Scotland than anywhere else in the UK with the same legislation. We have the worst record of drug deaths in Europe. So isn't it time the First Minister exercised her power, did sort it out, got a grip and fired her Minister for Public Health? First Minister. Um, I absolutely accept it is for this government to sort out. I have not mentioned any other government. I have not made any reference to powers that lie elsewhere. I am focused on what we need to do and what we are determined to do. I set out the action I personally as First Minister will take in the weeks to come, coming back to this chamber and setting out clearly the outcome of uh, that exercise. Th there are issues, as we have uh, canvassed in this chamber many times before, over where uh, legal responsibility for things like safe consumption rooms uh, lie. That is an important part of this, but it is not the only part. My starting point uh, is what powers we have right now and what the responsibility of this government is. Uh, and that's how I intend to proceed. Um, and uh, we will continue to have discussions uh, about the, the, the issues that lie out with our powers. Uh, but the starting point is what this government is responsible for, and it's this government's responsibility to sort this out. Question number three, Patrick Harvey. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, even during a pandemic, we need to recognise the far longer-term emergency that we face, the climate emergency. Yesterday, in the same week as the update to the Scottish Government's climate plan, the Supreme Court breathes new life into the disastrous plan for a third runway at Heathrow Airport, ruling that existing climate targets simply don't need to apply to those plans. This decision flies in the face of the UN's warning last week that the world is on course for three degrees of warming, a trajectory that would be devastating for all our future. 
Given the Scottish Government signed a memorandum of understanding with Heathrow in 2016, backing that third runway, a move that would hugely increase flight numbers and emissions, can the First Minister explain why building this extra runway would be good for the climate, or is she finally ready to drop her support for this deeply irresponsible project? First Minister. Um, this is not a decision for the Scottish Government. Um, I'm very clear that we have a responsibility uh, to meet our own climate change targets. We, unlike some other governments, we include aviation uh, emissions. I agree. I, I think there is a big question over new runways at a time when all of us uh, are focused on making sure that we reduce emissions uh, and become net zero, in our case, by 2045. Um, but we will focus on making sure right across transport, uh, how we heat our uh, homes and buildings um, and the continued work we're doing uh, around electricity, for example, that we are, are meeting those targets. We published the updated climate change plan uh, this week, which sets out both the scale of the Scottish Government's ambition, but also the very detailed steps that we are going to take, uh, not just to meet the ultimate 2045 target, but the interim 2030 target as well. Patrick Harvey. I certainly didn't say that building this runway is the Scottish Government's decision, but they have entered the Memorandum of Understanding with Heathrow. Their support is given to that, that, that project, and the decision about whether to continue that support is one for the Scottish Government to make. It's not enough to say there are questions about new runways. It's important for the Scottish Government and the First Minister to say what their policy actually is. And as for the, the climate plan update, there are elements in there to welcome, like uh, free bus travel for young people that will start next year, increased budget for low-carbon homes and infrastructure for cycling and walking. All of those, of course, are policies that the Scottish Government had to be persuaded to adopt by the Greens, only being brought forward by the Scottish Government because of the pressure we brought to bear. As for the rest of the plan, the STUC have described it as more rhetoric than action. WWF have called it a missed opportunity with big decisions over the future of farming, energy standards uh, for homes, dodged and delayed. And of course, the Scottish Government say they want to cut traffic, but they continue to plough billions into new roads. In the end, it's making tough decisions and taking action that counts. Decisions like those by Norway to end fossil fuel exploration now and set a date for ending extraction, or decisions by New York committing to a huge programme of divesting public money from the fossil fuel industry. Can the First Minister tell us whether the Scottish Government will finally be ready to back these kind of bold steps before the Global Climate Conference meets in Glasgow less than a year from now? First Minister. Uh, we'll be looking at all different ways in which we can ensure that we meet uh, those targets. Some of the countries and, and uh, areas, uh, cities that uh, Patrick Harvey talks about, of course, are uh, countries and cities that actually look to and consider Scotland already to be a world leader in some of this action. We have gone further than most other countries in the world in reducing emissions so far, and I would uh, disagree with Patrick Harvey. I think uh, the scale of the ambition is demonstrated in the uh, climate uh, plan update, um, and that sets out across all of the areas of responsibility, the very specific, and in many, many cases, the really tough actions that we require to take, um, and we will continue uh, to focus on that. Uh, in terms of Heathrow, I, you know, I, I do think that there is uh, merit in the case that Patrick Harvey is making. The Memorandum of Understanding is about making sure if the Heathrow expansion goes ahead, which is not our decision, then Scotland benefits economically from that. But I, I, I do think 
like the, the climate emergency and the responsibility all of us uh, have mean that those who are responsible for that decision have to think very carefully about how that fits in uh, to the uh, determination to reduce emissions and become net zero. So we will continue, I, I think, to take a leadership position on this up to uh, COP26 in Glasgow in November, but beyond that as well. Uh, we are focused uh, very much not, uh, as I said, just on the ultimate 2045 target, but on that extremely stretching target that Parliament agreed for 2030. It's going to involve very, very tough decisions along the way, but given that Parliament has agreed the target, it is now incumbent on the Government with Parliament to make sure we take the actions that can meet it. Thank you. Question four, Willie Rennie. It should not have taken this year's record deaths for the First Minister to step up and take the lead on drug use. We've, we have had record numbers of deaths for years, and I'm particularly angry about how this has developed. When I first joined this Parliament, I raised this issue repeatedly with her predecessor and then with her and offered solutions. And the truth is this. For a decade, while drug deaths were on the rise, the response from this government was to cut the funds for drug rehabilitation. And I think the First Minister knows that that was a reckless decision. The First Minister says she has not pointed to any other government or any power that she wants for this Parliament today. But our Public Health Minister has been doing that all this week. We now need real leadership. It's a huge responsibility. We need a minister who is able to drive change. And whatever his talents, Joe Fitzpatrick is not that person. Once again, will the First Minister appoint a new drugs minister? First Minister. I'm going to work with the Drugs Minister to make sure we collectively uh, accept this responsibility and take the actions that are required uh, to fix the problem. The issues about uh, where powers lie is not irrelevant. Uh, the reason I have not today focused on that is because I think it is right and proper that I stand here today and don't try to defend a position that is indefensible. Instead, accept candidly that we have not done enough and that we have to, although there is work, serious work underway, we have to ask ourselves whether that is enough and whether that is going fast enough. And I am not going to shy away from that and I'm not going to uh, try to defend things that I don't think I should stand here and do. But, but there are issues um, about, uh, particularly around safe consumption rooms, about where power lies uh, and whether, if power doesn't lie here, we have the ability to work together with the UK Government to resolve some of these issues. These issues won't go away and we will continue to take these forward. Uh, but I will continue to lead, uh, I will lead uh, the efforts of the government uh, on this over the period ahead, but I will do that with the Drugs Minister um, and with uh, the government as a whole. This is our responsibility. I'm not going to shy away from that today. Uh, instead, I'm going to make sure uh, that we put in place the plans to fix this uh, for the sake uh, of those who have lost their lives and their families who uh, grieve those lost lives, but also for the sake of those whose lives we can save. Every single one of these lives matters, uh, and that's the most important thing for all of us. Willie Rennie. I just wish she had taken that determined approach 13 years ago when she first became First Minister. But I want to follow up on, on schools. Yesterday, the First Minister tightened advice 
for Christmas, but is still opting for many schools to stay open until Christmas Eve. Teachers aren't on the vaccination list. They aren't on the routine testing list. Those who were shielding on the shielding list are told to keep on working in school. Teachers are feeling forgotten. I understand the need for pupils not to miss out on yet more education. But the fact is that little useful learning is going to take place in schools next week. And if there is, then it can be switched online because we're ready for that. We should be able to make arrangements for childcare just like before. Spreading the virus in schools next week could spread the virus to vulnerable relatives at Christmas. So will the First Minister think again and close schools next week? First Minister. Back in uh, the summer, or as we came out of the summer, I, I recall questions from Willie Rennie that were actually berating me for taking decisions, leaving parents without childcare. Now, you know, these decisions have to be taken in the round. When it comes to schools, the most important thing um, is the education of, of young people. And given that our young people have had a term out of school this year, I think as far as is possible, our objective and our priority should be to have children in school uh, for the remainder of the term and have them in school again as uh, they go back after the, the Christmas period. I think that is important. Uh, that does not mean uh, teachers are forgotten or we do not listen to the concerns that teachers have. It is because we listen to those concerns and want to address them that Public Health Scotland has done a lot of analysis in terms of the impact of COVID both on teachers in our schools and on pupils in our schools. The latest of that was published at yesterday um, and it's why we continue to liaise with teachers the deputy first minister chairs the education recovery group which teachers are, are represented on we will put public health first uh, at every single stage of this and of course the uh, advisory group subcommittee on education gives us that public health advice uh, which allows us right now to make the judgment that it is better for young people to be in school uh, than out of school. Uh, but we will continue to make sure that we monitor that carefully. Uh, we are in a period again when COVID cases are rising. Uh, so that cautious and precautionary approach will continue to guide all that we do. But I think we should have as our priority the maintenance of full-time in-school education. And if that means adults, uh, the rest of us having to make more sacrifices and have more restrictions, then I think that is a price we should all be willing to pay. Thank you. Question five, Julian Martin. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister how the Scottish Government's statement of intent on biodiversity will support Scotland's transition to net zero. First Minister. Uh, the science is clear that climate change and biodiversity loss are intrinsically linked and we are determined to tackle them on that basis. Uh, Scotland is blessed with the opportunity for nature-based solutions to climate change like tree planting and peatland restoration which remove carbon from the atmosphere and secure it in natural habitats. We've already committed investment of £250 million over 10 years on peatland restoration and an additional £150 million over the next five years in forestry. The latest policies and proposals are outlined in the recent climate change plan update. As well as supporting biodiversity and tackling climate change, these investments can provide good green jobs and support the economic and social well-being of our communities, something that is central to a green recovery from COVID. Gillian Martin. Thank the First Minister for the answer. And I want to quote the words of the Committee for Climate Change in their Scottish Progress report published just in October. 
They say the Scottish economy has decarbonised more quickly than the rest of the UK and faster than any G20 economy since 2008. Emissions have fallen rapidly while the economy has grown. Now, this clearly recognises the scale of Scotland's ambition and action. But the CCC have also noted that a lot of the progress has come from success in decarbonisation of electricity and that we should focus on rapid action outside of the electricity sector. Can the First Minister outline how the Climate Change Plan update published yesterday does this? First Minister. Uh, well, I very much agree with the premise of that question and I, I welcome the Climate Change Committee's assessment of Scotland's progress to date. Uh, and of course, it's uh, imperative that we continue uh, to build on that progress. Uh, the paper updates the 2018 plan with over 100 new policies and uh, boosts or accelerates uh, over 40 more across all sectors. That includes transport, land use and buildings and includes investment of £120 million in zero emission buses, £50 million to transform vacant and derelict land and £70 million in improving uh, recycling infrastructure. So there are actions across the board um, building on the success in electricity and seeking to replicate that across the other sectors that uh, will be challenging uh, to do, but are absolutely vital if we are to meet that net zero target by 2045. Thank you. Question number six, Jamie Green. Thank you. To ask the First Minister whether she will provide an update on the conditions regarding blood donations. First Minister. Well, can I begin by saying how grateful I am, and I'm sure all of us are, to everyone who donates blood uh, we welcome the recent research recommendations on this and have asked the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service to make changes by next summer to the questions blood donors are asked. Uh, the changes will ensure an up-to-date, individualised assessment of risk of blood-borne virus infection it is applied to all donors, uh, and men will no longer be automatically deferred from donating blood if they have had sex with another man in the past three months. These changes will adopt the recommendations of the UK-wide for assessment of individualised risk group. The Advisory Committee on the Safety of Blood, Tissues and Organs has confirmed the proposals will not impact on the safe supply of blood. Jamie Green. Can I thank the First Minister for that? Donating blood is one of the simplest and purest ways we can help others. Yet, for many years, presiding officer, many men were barred from donating blood, even if they were healthy and willing, due to archaic rules which found their roots in the AIDS crisis of the 80s. Uh, presiding officer, I was one of them. These new recommendations by the First Steering Group represent, I think, a pragmatic and a world-leading shift in our approach to fairness and equality, and it's been a long time coming, thanks to the relentless campaigning from Freedom to Donate, the Terence Higgins Trust, and many cross-party efforts. This change is a welcome one. But right now, the NHS desperately needs tens of thousands more male blood donors to counter a 25% drop these past uh, five years. So will the First Minister join me in a much wider call that those who are willing to and able to donate blood should come forward and do so, and do so safe in the knowledge that they will be treated with dignity and respect. First Minister. Um, can I thank Jamie Green for, for the question and absolutely agree uh, with him on that. Can I also take the opportunity to thank all of the organisations who have campaigned for this change? It's a change uh, I have long had sympathy with, although as government, of course, we have to be advised uh, by the Advisory Committee on the Safety uh, of Blood in these uh, decisions. But I am very, very pleased uh, that these recommendations have now been made and accepted. And I completely uh, and utterly understand the sense of uh, inequity and unfairness and injustice that many men have felt uh, over the years when they have not been able to give blood. Um, in terms of the wider call, yes, I would uh, make an appeal to everybody who is able to, to come 
forward uh, to donate blood. It is uh, one of the things uh, that uh, not all of us, uh, but uh, many of us can do uh, to help uh, save lives, uh, keep people safe and uh, contribute to that collective sense of well-being that I think all of us have been so reminded of the importance of in recent months. Thank you. Question 7, Polly McNeill. To ask the First Minister how the Scottish Government plans to help students who will lose out financially on their accommodation costs as a result of the staggered return to universities. First Minister. The Scottish Government has no direct role in the provision of student accommodation, uh, whether that's managed by universities or private sector organisations. However, uh, we do expect universities and accommodation providers to support students to come to an appropriate resolution of issues around tenancy agreements. Uh, these are judgments that universities and providers must make in contact and consultation with their student community. Universities and providers should treat students sympathetically and take students' circumstances into account so that they're not disadvantaged. And we will continue to discuss these issues with both Universities Scotland and NUS Scotland. Any student facing additional hardship as a result of COVID should apply for financial support from the higher education discretionary funds. We provided emergency funding earlier this year of £5 million for students impacted by the pandemic and also brought forward access to more than £11 million of higher education discretionary funds. Pauline McNeill. I welcome that answer from the First Minister. She will be aware that the National Union of Students has said that students should be given additional financial support for pay, to pay for accommodation they are not using when students face a staggered return to university next term because many students were encouraged back to university only to find that all other classes were online. Today I launched Scottish Labour's housing charter that includes the right to form a tenants union and the principle that students should be protected from exploitative practices during the COVID pandemic, sentiments I'm sure the First Minister will agree with. But can the First Minister continue to assure Parliament that she will keep in contact with universities when students are returning to campus to take up university accommodation to make sure that they actually benefit from face-to-face -face teaching and are not there in their accommodation unnecessarily and to ensure that they get the financial support they need for their rents. First Minister. Um, yes, we'll do all of that. Uh, can I agree that uh, students, actually not just in principle, but, but in practice, should be protected from any exploitative practices? Um, it is the case that with only very limited exceptions, undergraduate students are going to restart their studies um, and at the start of the next term at home um, and will only uh, return uh, to term time accommodation when asked to do so by their university. So it is really important that universities and accommodation providers, as I said earlier on, uh, do discuss with students how they are not disadvantaged. We will also uh, discuss with University of Scotland and NUS uh, Scotland any uh, support that the Scottish Government can provide uh, for that. And I've already set out the discretionary funding that is available for students who find themselves in financial hardship. Students are one of the many groups in society that have been impacted uh, severely by COVID and it's absolutely right and proper that we do everything we can to support them. Thank you. We'll take supplementary questions now. Claire Adamson to be followed by Finlay Carson. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, this Conservative Government have failed to broker uh, access to um, the Erasmus Plus programme for Scotland. This programme was instigated by Winnie Ewing and, of course, has been life-enhancing for generations of Scots students, but students from the rest of the UK and across Europe. Does the First Minister agree that this failure is an act of cultural vandalism by a floundering Conservative government? First Minister. Um, Erasmus 
Erasmus is something that we should all be really proud of. Uh, Winnie Ewing was uh, the, the driving force behind it, of course, but uh, there have been so many uh, young people, not just in Scotland, but as Claire Adamson says, across the UK and Europe, that have benefited in so many ways from participation in Erasmus. It has also delivered real economic benefits to, to Scotland as well. So its loss is deeply, deeply regrettable. And I, I, I do think it is... It really, really unfortunate that the Conservatives did not prioritise uh, securing the future of that. Obviously, we want to consider ways in which we can keep the benefits uh, of it, but it is one of the very uh, many ways in which I think people across Scotland deeply regret the Brexit that has been foisted upon us uh, by the Conservative Government. Thank you. Finlay Carson actually can't join us remotely. Miles Briggs to be followed by Elaine Smith. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, yesterday NHS Lothian informed local elected representatives that SNP ministers had informed them that they were, with, they were withdrawing funding for the new eye hospital for Lothian. Plans for replacement for this 50-year-old Princess Alexander Eye Pavilion were at, a, at an advanced stage, and indeed contracts were awarded some two years ago. Will the First Minister personally intervene today and restore this funding for my constituents across Lothian? First Minister. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure the situation is uh, quite as characterised, but I will undertake to uh, look into it further and correspond uh, with the member. Uh, we, of course, uh, as is the case for governments uh, across the UK. Uh, funding is constrained. We have to make difficult choices about funding, uh, but making sure that we have fit-for-purpose, state-of-the-art health facilities in every part of the country is a priority. But I will come back to the member in due course. El Elaine Smith, be followed by Fulton McGregor. Thank you, presiding officer. I've been made aware by a constituent that a major retail company is refusing to give eligible frontline staff time off for their COVID uh, vaccine appointments. I won't publicly name the company because the staff are worried about getting into trouble by alerting us to this. Presiding officer, can the First Minister advise us what message she would send to this company and any other that puts their own staff and wider society at risk by such unreasonable behaviour? Well, I think the vast majority of employers have acted responsibly to help protect their workers from the risk of COVID and, uh, of course, facilitating the ability of uh, workers to get vaccinated is, is part of that. So I would send a very clear message to any company that doesn't behave in that responsible way that they uh, should rectify that uh, and, and put concern for their workers and, of course, fair work more generally at the heart of everything they do. Um, I appreciate why the member doesn't want to name the company publicly. If she wants to privately uh, let me know who that is, I will ensure or look to see whether there is any dialogue uh, we can have to rectify the situation. Thank you. Fulton McGregor to be followed by Gordon Linters. Thank you, President Officer. Can I ask the First Minister if she will provide an update to the Chamber on changes to legislation that would entitle all four-year-old children access to funded childcare when their parents choose to defer for a year? And will she take this opportunity in joining with me in thanking the Give Them Time campaign, particularly its founding members, Patricia Anderson and Diane Delaney, the latter who is from Steps in my constituency, for their tireless work in raising awareness of this issue and fighting for change? First Minister. Well, I would join with Fulton McGregor in thanking the Give Them Time campaign uh, for their continued engagement on this matter. I know that the Children's Minister has met uh, with them on a number of occasions, I think most recently on the 3rd of December, and has found these discussions extremely helpful. 
Uh, as members will be aware, we laid an order before Parliament on the 7th of December to extend the obligation on education authorities to provide an additional year of funded early learning and childcare to all children who defer their primary one start from, uh, and that will be from August 2023. Uh, and yesterday we announced five local authorities uh, will pilot implementation of the entitlement during 2021-22. These pilots will help us assess likely uptake of the extended entitlement and, of course, inform wider delivery. Gordon Lindhurst, to be followed by Jackie Bailey. First Minister, uh, I have been contacted by and on behalf of Essex Pupils in West Lothian. Now, their understanding is that they will be asked to sit an SQA paper as part of grades assessment at a different time to other schools in their area. Their question to you is, how would that be an acceptable, equal or fair way of assessing them for their grades? So I, I put that question to you, First Minister, and ask what your answer is. First Minister. Well, schools, of course, have to judge uh, and assess the performance of pupils, and schools will use uh, different ways of doing that. And uh, the, the way that uh, the member has set out may well be a way that uh, some schools uh, decide to use. But uh, I'm happy to look into the particular issue that the member has raised, and if there are issues we want to address, to come back to him in writing. But I think we've got to recognise that in an environment where, regrettably, exams cannot take place as normal, there will be other ways uh, throughout the year that schools use to assess the performance of their pupils. And I think that is right and proper. Jackie Bailey to be followed by Angus Macdonald. From this weekend and over Christmas, drive-in movies and drive-in pantos were planned for Loman Shores in Western Berkshire and indeed across many areas in Scotland. But these have had to be cancelled with a potential loss of hundreds of creative sector jobs. Many families in my constituency are disappointed as they thought that this was a safe way to have a little enjoyment at Christmas. So can the First Minister advise why these events are not allowed when apparently they are allowed in every other country in the UK? First uh, we're trying to uh, take as many precautions as possible uh, to stop the increase in COVID cases. We look very carefully at all of these things. With drive-through events, and it's uh, one of uh, the, the, the class of events that we, we look very, very carefully at, uh, because I can understand why people uh, think uh, that that is safe, but there are, we are advising against car sharing at the moment, uh, because we know the enclosed environments of cars can pose a particular risk of transmission. Um, and of course, drive-through events uh, also have to have things like toilet uh, facilities, uh, and there can often be catering on these sites. So the, the combination of these factors have led us, regrettably, to the conclusion that it is not uh, safe in the current circumstances for these to go ahead. Um, I know that is disappointing. I think everybody is bitterly disappointed that this Christmas cannot be celebrated in the normal ways, and I am really sorry uh, for that, particularly for children um, who cannot uh, do all the things that children uh, love doing at this time of year, from going to Santa's grottos to pantomimes and all sorts of things. Hopefully, by this time next year, everybody will be uh, taking part in these activities much more normally but I would ask people uh, no matter how disappointed I know they are to be understanding of the reasons why these decisions unfortunately are essential. Angus Macdonald to be followed by Graeme Simpson. Thank you President Officer. I'm sure the First Minister will agree that the, the climate change plan update published yesterday and discussed earlier is an extremely ambitious action plan. Clearly, Scotland's doing everything it can, but we're inevitably held back by the limits of devolution. So what action does the UK government need to take now to ensure Scotland is not held back from meeting our world-leading target and ending our contribution to climate change? First Minister. Oh, can I thank Angus Macdonald for the question? Uh, the climate uh, change plan and the ambitions in that uh, are 
world leading, as I've said already, but it's our responsibility, all of us uh, across this parliament, to make sure we're taking the actions to meet the targets uh, in that plan. Of course, there are some powers that don't lie with us. They remain reserved to the UK government, and therefore we need to work with the UK government and look to them to take action on a number of areas as well. So, for example, that would include uh, reforming the contract for difference, uh, arrangements to support wave and tidal generation and, of course, support local supply chains. It means uh, support for new technologies, carbon capture, hydrogen. It means decarbonisation of the gas grid. These are things that the Scottish Government cannot do on our own and we uh, rely on the UK Government living up to its obligations as well. And we hope very much that they will do exactly that. Thank you. Graeme Simpson, to be followed by Sarah Boyack. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Councillors in Labour-run North Lanarkshire have recently voted to give senior officers an average pay rise of £10,000. That leaves a yawning gap between them and the next best paid of £30,000. Of course, £30,000 is a salary that many of those who have lost their jobs during the COVID crisis would love to have. So does the First Minister agree with me that giving council bosses eye-watering five-figure pay rises at this time is wholly inappropriate. First Minister. Uh, I'm not sure support for the very highest uh, income earners in society is the strongest ground for the Tories ever to be on, but we'll leave that to one side. Uh, I'm not aware of the particular arrangements that is a matter for the local authority. I think uh, those of us in public sector positions, uh, particularly those of us at the higher end of the income scale in public sector positions have a real obligation to show constraint and responsibility in these difficult times. The Scottish Government has had a pay freeze in place since I think 2008 and that will continue and of course that arrangement will apply next year for members of the Scottish Parliament as well. So I would expect all councils and across the public sector to continue to have these principles in mind. We all of us I think want to make sure that we help those at the bottom end of the, the income scale as much as possible. But I'm not going to uh, comment any further on a decision that is for the council in question, not one for the Scottish Government. Thank you. Sarah Boyack, to be followed by Christine Graham. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Is the First Minister concerned about the appalling racist attack in Edinburgh last Friday? And can she say what work is being done to ensure the police are resourced to address racist incidents during this pandemic? My constituents are now extremely concerned about their personal safety. First Minister. Um, I condemn in the strongest possible terms any uh, racist abuse or racist attack, including uh, the one in Edinburgh. Uh, I know how seriously uh, the police uh, take uh, crimes of uh, a racist nature. Uh, obviously, uh, how they deal with individual incidents is an operational matter for the police. Uh, we have a responsibility which we discharge to make sure that the police uh, are properly resourced. And of course, there are uh, more police officers on our streets uh, now uh, as a result of the actions that this government uh, has taken. But I think it is really important uh, that all of us stand firm, shoulder to shoulder, in complete solidarity um, against any racist abuse uh, or racist crimes or attacks. Uh, that is not who we are, uh, and we should never, ever show any tolerance whatsoever to it. Thank you. Christine Graham to be followed by Lee McCarthy. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, at the Culture, Tourism and Europe Committee this week, I asked Michael Gove if the Northern Ireland Protocol would disadvantage the Scottish economy as a tariff-free Northern Ireland and tariff trade from Scotland would mean there would not be a level playing field. He didn't give a straight answer, just prevarication, of course. First Minister, no, you'll give me a straight answer. So what will the impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol be on the Scottish economy? 
First Minister. Uh, of course it will disadvantage the Scottish economy. Um, I, I don't grudge Northern Ireland the arrangements uh, that it will have. Um, I'm really pleased that uh, I hope we will have a situation uh, where Northern Ireland can continue to benefit from uh, some kind of relationship with the single market. And of course, I very much hope that a, a hard border between the north and south of Ireland uh, can be avoided. But any best of both worlds arrangements for Northern Ireland uh, do have an impact in Scotland. We have many situations where we will be competing for inward investment. Um, and therefore, I am really concerned about the impact of that on the Scottish economy, just as I am deeply concerned about the overall impact of Brexit. Let's never forget, Brexit is being done to Scotland against our will. Uh, and the sooner we have a situation where Scotland is not forced down paths we don't want to go and instead is in charge of our own future, the better for all of us. Liam MacArthur to be followed by Shona Robinson. Thank you, President Officer. Since my former colleague Tavish Scott first introduced the Air Discount Scheme in 2006, it has benefited thousands of people living and working in communities across the Highlands and Islands. Accessing our Lifeline Air services remains costly, but much less so uh, as a result of ADS support. To its credit, the Scottish Government has continued this support, albeit cutting it for those travelling for work. However, the current scheme is due to end in a fortnight. As yet, there's been no confirmation from the government that ADS will continue beyond 31st December. So can the First Minister assure my constituents and others who rely on this support to be able to access their lifeline air services that ADS will indeed continue beyond the end of this year? Uh, we have, as uh, the member uh, has noted there, supported the ADS uh, scheme and uh, we continue to uh, see the vital importance of that. Um, I will ensure I get an answer uh, on the particular detail of the timing of this to the member uh, later today. But the support of the Scottish Government is well known and continuing. Shuna Robinson to be followed by John Scott. Thank you. Uh, will the First Minister join with me in welcoming the signing today of the Tay Cities deal? And does she agree that the deal, which includes £20 million of investment by the Scottish Government in a regional skills and employability development programme, will be crucial in helping Dundee's economic recovery from COVID-19? First Minister. Well, I'm very pleased uh, to say that the Transport Secretary uh, did sign the Tay Cities region deal this morning, uh, confirming our £150 million investment in the, the region. This is a, a really vital investment at a time of unprecedented need and enables the deal to get underway and start delivering real benefits for the people and businesses of the region. Uh, the commitments made with our partners will help deliver sustainable, inclusive growth in the region. Uh, partners anticipate that the deal has the potential to secure 6,000 jobs and lever over £400 million of investment into the region, which I think everybody would agree will make a crucial contribution to economic recovery and renewal in the years to come. And John Scott, before by Neil Findlay. Thank you, Presiding Officer. The First Minister and Ruth Davidson spoke earlier of the first epidemic of COVID-19 and the second epidemic of drug deaths happening on the First Minister's watch. Can I ask about the third epidemic of people in Scotland dying from the lack of routine scanning and treatment, for example, for cancer that would have been treatable if diagnosed early, but is no longer treatable now? Does the First Minister regret this as well? And what further resources is she giving to health boards to help resolve this third epidemic, which is causing too many unnecessary deaths now and will in the future? First Minister. Uh, there has been an impact in Scotland 
across the UK and indeed across many other countries uh, on uh, other uh, health treatments because of the pandemic crisis that we have faced. That is, I think, deeply regrettable for all of us, but that has been unavoidable in uh, the past few months. Uh, the Scottish Government is working. The Health Secretary has set out much of the detail of this already, generally, but in particular in relation to cancer, to recover those services as quickly as possible. The Cancer Recovery Plan um, has been published um, and that work has been taken forward. And of course, we uh, continue to have engagement and dialogue on this, as on all matters, with health boards about the appropriate resourcing of that. We are investing uh, record sums in our National Health Service and that will continue and the importance of that as we recover uh, from the impact of COVID is going to get uh, greater, uh, not uh, the opposite, in the, the months and years to come. And Neil Finlay. Uh, this week, uh, res well-respected researchers at the University of West of Scotland identified a 55% cut in drug and alcohol budgets since 2007. So will the First Minister now reinstate every single penny plus interest of that money, will she stop prosecuting a man with a van who's saving lives? And will she please, and I say this, I say this very seriously, will she please listen to the voices in this parliament who believe that in government we need someone who's competent and capable of driving change at a ministerial level? First Minister. Um, on the issue of funding, I accept, as I've already accepted, there are questions about uh, the adequacy of the funding we are dedicating uh, to uh, drugs generally, but to rehabilitation services in particular. Um, as a matter of fact, in terms of uh, the funding for drugs and alcohol, uh, in 2008, that was uh, 71 uh, million pounds in, in real terms. In this year, it's 95, uh, and it has increased in most of the years in between uh, apart from the, the years I, I spoke about earlier. But I accept the general point uh, that we, we have a duty to make sure that the funding uh, is supporting the steps that we require to take. On the issue of prosecution, I, I, I absolutely accept the genuine uh, intent and sentiment behind Neil Finlay's question, but he knows I don't prosecute people. Uh, the prosecution decisions are uh, rightly independent from ministers. In terms of uh, the provision of safe consumption facilities, in terms of the individual that Neil Finlay is referring to, I understand uh, his desire to see those facilities and I share that. And there are, uh, there is a debate about how we best do that in Scotland, which I, I know Neil Finlay is aware of. In terms of the responsibility of the government, I have uh, made it clear uh, both that I think uh, some of the criticisms, perhaps not all of them, but some and many of the criticisms being levelled at the government today um, are legitimate. It is for me to take that uh, squarely on the chin. But the responsibility of me as First Minister working with my team of ministers is to make sure that we are supporting the task force and the work it is doing and making sure the right steps are being taken and that the 